Greetings, everyone. My name is Peter Diager, and welcome to the fifth episode of Y2K and Autobiography, a series of podcasts slash webinars. This episode is about the two different Y2K stories that were going on at the same time, and a tremendous amount of overlap between the two. The first one was the technical side, the side that I and most of the computer people were focused on. And then, of course, there was the hyperbole, <laughs> the hype. How bad did the hype get? Well, I have in front of me the weekly world news. I know, I know. Uh, I didn't buy it. It was most probably given to me. Uh, from February the 16th, 1999. Front page, Armageddon. Year 2000 computer bug will turn machine against man. Hundreds of planes will fall from the sky. Cars will stop dead in their tracks. Nuclear missiles will launch themselves. Anybody who says there was hype is, well, they're correct. There was. Now, it didn't start out that way. When I wrote my first article in early 1993, the title was Times of Wasting. Very unusual, yeah, very blasé, bland title. And it got no attention. I was off at a conference speaking about a subject. In the audience was an editor for Computer World, large computer magazine in the States. Circulation, I believe at the time, of about 340,000 people uh, globally. And they asked me to write an article about what I'd spoken about. It was at a ASM meeting, Association for Systems Management meeting in San Francisco. And I was speaking on the PC productivity paradox. You know, here we have this powerful tool and we're not really getting the benefits we need. They come up to me, she comes up to me later, contacts me a little while after, and says, Peter, we'd like you to write an article about your talk. Who are you? Computer World. Oh, hold on. If you're Computer World and you want me to write an article, then let me write about something important rather than something trivial, the topic I spoke about at ASM. She says, what do you want to speak about? I tell her, the, the year 2000 computer problem, What's that? She, she wasn't aware of it. And I explained it to her. And then she says, okay, put it together and send it off to us. Sounds interesting. And we trust you to do a good job. When I sent it off, I sent off some possible titles. Now, the first title was the one prominent in my mind. In my mind, Y2K was a crisis. It had to be fixed. This is right in the beginning. But the other titles were, again, mundane, almost intellectual, a little bit of a play on words. Time and dates wait for no one. We get that, time and tide. Uh, an hour destroys them as a quote from Seneca. The full quote is, an age builds up cities. An hour destroys them. Uh, I know that a title has to be short, so I cut that down to an hour destroys them. Sort of sums up the Y2K problem, potentially. And then these are the times, which are, these are the times that tries men's souls. They didn't take any of those. One of the things I found out as a writer is that editors rarely take the title from the writer. I can get articles published, but I very, very rarely get titles published. Why? Because the editor knows more about the readership than I do. I know about my subject, but the editor has a task, and that task is to grab someone's attention. They want the article to be read. They don't just want it to be flipped by as you're looking at the you know advertising in the magazine. So she came back with, of course, the infamous Doomsday 2000. At the time, I was really annoyed. I, did, I didn't want that title. Fundamentally didn't want it. I didn't want to do Doomsday at all. I wasn't thinking like that. For me, we have a problem. We need to solve it. We can solve it if we start soon enough. And that's all I wanted to say. I didn't want to go any further than that. Along comes Doomsday 2000. Well, this thing grabs the attention of the world, quite literally. And I should have known how this works, because I write. I'm a writer and a speaker. I know that when I'm on the stage, I have to grab your attention, and I have to keep it for the length of time that I'm speaking. I know this. I know how to do it. When I'm writing, I'm learning how to do that. When I'm writing, these are quotes from the first two articles I wrote. One's the uh, Times of Wasting. That's the, um, the orange quotes. And the other one is the Doomsday 2000 article. We don't have a choice is a challenge. When you're reading it, I actually want you to disagree with that. 
because if you're disagreeing with it, you're engaging with the article. TikTok, TikTok, time is passing by was a visual image that I wanted to put in your head. The moment you say TikTok, you think of a clock and you think of a grandfather clock, possibly, if you still know what those are. Then I put up two questions. Have you done anything yet, or is it someone else's problem? Well, those are two questions that we had to ask throughout the entire decade of Y2K. We always had to be asking that question. Have you done anything, or are you leaving it to someone else? And once you ask someone a question, it's like saying, don't think of a pink elephant, as you both all immediately think of pink elephants. When I ask you a question, you immediately think of the answer. It's a technique for engaging the, the reader. Then there's perhaps they will be interest, interested to know their computer systems will blow up, come back to that in a second, in less than 78 months. This is actually a form of delegation. I'm trying to hand over a task to the reader, challenging them to say, look, you need to communicate to someone. The term blow up, if I'm a computer person, and I say, well, the computer program blew up. Uh, it's a metaphor. I don't mean anything exploded. There were no, there's no shrapnel. There's no shock wave. It's a metaphor. But if you don't know me, and if you don't know computers, and if you don't know the lingo, the, the jargon that we use, you might actually think that I'm saying computers will explode. No, they don't. And this is going to be part of the issue here. As we tried to communicate this thing, some things we said unknowingly were misunderstood, misconstrued. We, the, the term time bomb was used right from the earliest articles and ads that came out in for, for the year 2000 computer problem. In the first couple of episodes, I spoke about articles that were written in the 1980s and the 1970s, and the, word time, the phrase time bomb came up. Again, it's just a metaphor to reflect the fact that we have a deadline and we're moving towards it. And when we hit the deadline, if we don't fix it, something bad's going to happen, as in the program's going to stop doing what we wanted to do. That's bad. We are accelerating towards disaster. That's a, a little bit of exaggeration, admittedly. However, it's tapping into the Frederick Brooks uh, mythical man month thing. If you have a problem today, you might need 10 people to fix it. If you leave it till you have two days left, 10 people isn't enough. So there is a sense of accelerating as the, the problem gets more difficult, rapidly more difficult to fix, the, the less time we give it. And then the word crisis. Now, all of this represents that I know that it's important to grab attention. If I have an article, or if I'm giving a speech, or if I'm trying to sell a product, I need some way for that product, that idea, that concept, that article, that talk to grab someone's attention. So I have to do something different to it. Now, what we do different in order to gain attention, well, that's almost becoming a science. If you're on the internet today, you know that there is this concept of something going viral. In other words, it, it takes off and takes on a life of its own, another important concept. If there's enough activity around an idea, it's self-perpetuating. We have terms like that's clickbait. Whatever that title is, all that title is doing is it wants you to click. It wants you to click through to the article because that's what pays the advertisers. You get paid by clicks. So you need to write something in such a way that it's going to entice the person to click on it. Pay attention. This is important. Click here and get more information. And it's usually a farce. It's usually deceitful. When you get in there, it's boring. But the title was fascinating. You can do this by creating a challenge. There are ads you see for games. Only 1% of the population can solve this. And then they show someone playing the game, and they're playing it very poorly. And you can see better moves than what is being demonstrated. So immediately you're challenged. I'm better than the one. You know, I'm, I'm the 1%. I'm going to go in and do that. You've been enticed, hooked to go in and pay attention to this. You make an outrageous statement. Planes will fall from the sky. You've got to read that. How can you not read that? All the planes in the world are going to fall out of the sky. Of course you've got to read it. It has to be emotional. 
plane swirling out of the sky sort of fits that. Stories. If you tell a story, and if you can engage someone in the story, then you can sell them a message. You can sell, the, sell them a concept. If you ever watched the show Rifleman, every single episode was a little morality play. The same thing with Have Gun, Will Travel. Every installment had a, a moral tale lesson to teach, and they wrapped it up in a story. Triggers. What's out in the environment that's going to remind you of what it is you're trying to communicate? There was a advertising campaign by a company that made blenders, and they had this guy get on and ask the question, can you blend it? And he would put all types of things into the blender. Every time you see a blender, you think of that ad. If you've seen the ad, you'll think of it. Uh, he put iPhones into it. He put rocks into it. And this thing would blend it down to dust. And then one great way to get attention, to get someone engaged, is to set up a controversy, controversy, a, a, a confrontation between one group of people and the other. And there's nothing better that today than putting experts against the masses. All of this stuff helps us gain the attention of the potential client, customer, reader, listener. Now, if you wanted to start reading a little bit more about this, there's an interesting book out, fairly recent, Contagious, Why Things Catch On, and it's by Jonah Berger. If you go out and get that, you can read about how to make things go viral. It doesn't mention the same list of things I listed here, but it, it mentions a different list and gives many, many examples of how things have gone viral. Why do you care? Well, if you're communicating anything, if you're a project manager, if you're a brand manager, product manager, uh, if you're trying to write an article, if you're trying to write a story, then you need to figure out what is it that catch, catches people's attention. I took a couple of ideas out of the book, and I'm on Facebook, and every now and then I'm curious as to why things really take off. In other words, how many shares can you get? And using some of the ideas, I pulled off a little bit of a win. I posted something that got 65,000 shares. I'd never done that before. Uh, was it part luck? It's always part luck. First article I wrote got no attention. Second article I wrote on Y2K took off gangbusters and basically got me into this for the next decade. If you want a more academic look at what goes on when columnists try to run a story and what ones they choose, then this is a good book to pick up, Mediating the Message in the 21st Century. It's by Shoemaker and Reese, and they identify a slightly different category of attributes. Now, I have the title for this little section as If It Bleeds, It Leads. And you have to understand how important that concept is in the media. A organization did a survey of some 800 news media professionals. And they asked them a question. What's important in getting a piece of news out there? What will you write about? And 84% of them answered a question that if a story is dull, even though it's important, they will not even cover it. Wrap your head around that. In other words, for it to be published, for it to become news in the media, it needs to be exciting. If it's just an update, just a boring piece of news from their perspective, they won't run it, even if it's important. I have firsthand experience of that. Towards the end, around 1999, when I was working on Y2K, my schedule used to be posted on the internet. People knew where I was pretty much hour by hour. And at one point, I'm flying through Heathrow. I have a six-hour layover in Heathrow. I get contacted by the BBC. The BBC says, would you mind coming in for an interview into London over your layover? And I was tired. I was weary. I've been traveling a lot. 
I get very antsy around airports. I don't like being missing flights and all the rest. I said, no, I'm not interested in finding my way downtown London to do an interview and then find my way back to the airport, possibly get stuck in a traffic. So I'm not going to, not interested. If you're willing to send a crew out, happy to give you an hour of my time, but I'm not coming into London. They said, okay, well, don't know if we have a crew you know, available, so we'll get back to you. About a couple of hours later, they phoned back. This was the conversation, and I, I'm not making it up. I'm not exaggerating it. They said the following, Mr. Diager, we can get a crew, but tell us, if you're going to tell us that everything is fine, we're not going to send the crew out. If you're going to tell us that we have major problems, then we'll send the crew out. And since my message at that point in 1999 was, everything is fine. We've taken care of this. There will not be major issues. There'll still be some problems, but we won't have issues. They said, we're not interested in reporting that. We're simply not interested in reporting something that is important, but dull. And good news is dull. There's another aspect to the whole Y2K story in that it's almost like a science story. And science reporting is incredibly difficult because part of the problem is, is that the reporter interviewing the scientist, the person who speaks very precisely, uh, very nuanced, very, very clear, every word has a specific meaning. The reporter doesn't know those words. They don't understand that sense of rigor. So when they're reporting it, it becomes incredibly difficult for the scientist to have their message communicated properly. Right now, we are going through the coronavirus epidemic, pandemic. And there's a great site that's showing you the curves. And the site is GISAND data, GISANDdata.maps.arcgis.com. Okay, if you go there and look at the graph of confirmed cases, you see what is almost an exponential curve. Now, the, the graph isn't lying. It's telling you exactly what it's showing you. It's showing you the number of confirmed cases day by day. And if you take a look at the graph, every single day, the number of new confirmed cases is larger than the new confirmed cases yesterday. In other words, the, it's speeding up. Something is speeding up. Now, when you look at that graph, what do you think? What you think is the rate of infection is growing. I mean, that's what, it almost screams that at you. The rate of infection is growing. A couple of days ago, we had a peculiar bump. What happened was, is that it jumped. First, it, it dropped off for two days. The rate of increase was slowing, and then it spiked. And when I say spiked, I mean it spiked like a factor of five or six in one day. In other words, it took a, a sharp turn. Now, if you don't, even if you don't know anything about epidemics and how they spread, that just doesn't look right. Nature, the, the, the world doesn't leap forward. It grows forward smoothly for the most part. And this got people questioning what exactly are we looking at? There was also a report, and this one's important, that they were running out of test supplies. If you're testing to see if someone has the virus, you need medical supplies to do that. They were running out of those supplies. On the date of the spike, they had figured out a different way to do the testing. What the two graphs are showing us is not the rate of spread, which is what they seem to say. Instead, it's saying, how fast are they able to test people for the disease. So the graph is showing you the rate of testing, not the rate of infection. Now, you're saying to yourself, Peter, this is very complicated. Well, yeah, that's the point. It is incredibly difficult 
to communicate a very specific message without it getting distorted by graphs, by our understanding of what the graph says, by the meaning of the word. When the graph is titled rate of confirmed cases, it's telling you what it's doing. This is the number of confirmations we're making. It says nothing about the spread of the disease at all. It says, how fast can you test people to see if they have disease? That's all it's measuring. Uh, there's one more point. Uh, if I see the graph on a diagram that is taller than it is wider, that curve seems to jump up. It, it goes very, very high. If I show the graph, same data, on a piece of paper that is wider than it is tall, then the, the, the rate of growth doesn't seem to be as bad. And that has to do with how we process information. If you want to get into the weeds on this subject, there is a phenomenally good book entitled The Visual Display of Quantitative Information by Edward R. Tuff, T-U-F-T-E. It is the Bible on how do you represent data and how do you communicate data. Now, let's bring it back to Y2K. But it's not Y2K now that we're talking about what we're talking about, how we communicate. Communicating is very, very difficult. There's a whole series of processes. Now I'm going to step through each one between myself and a reporter, or anyone and a reporter. Reporter asks me a question. And what I want to say is the following. If your systems are affected by the Y2K problem, it will possibly cause problems unless fixed in time. Now, if you're listening carefully, you're going to hear all my qualifiers. First off, if your systems are affected by the Y2K problem, it will possibly cause problems unless fixed in time. Three qualifiers, three vitally important qualifiers. That's what I want to say. But I know I have to communicate in a way to the journalist, to the reporter, so that they understand and that their attention span is, is short, like anybody else's. So I have to trim it back a little bit. And I change it as follows. It's a minor change. If your systems are affected by the Y2K problem, it will possibly cause problems in the year 2000. In other words, I don't say what I said earlier, you know, you have to fix it in time. I get rid of that and say, look, here, give us something the definitive hard. I have to fix it in the year 2000. And if asked further, I would say it has to be fixed by December 31st, 1999. Okay. Each time I'm saying something slightly different, but I'm trying to zero in on a particular idea. So that's what I said. Now we have the guy listening to me. And what the person listening to me hears is dependent upon their internal bias, their attention, and their interpretation. Like, what did they hear? Did they hear all the qualifiers? They don't hear the word if. What they hear is your systems are affected by the Y2K problem. It will cause problems, possibly gets dropped out. It will cause problems in the year 2000. They then have to interpret, what did I mean? Because they're smart enough to realize that they may be misinterpreting. So they have to do a little bit of a transition themselves, a translation. And what they think I meant, and again, this is affected by their bias, any words they may have misheard, or any words that they may have not understood in the way that I'm using them. It's complicated. Your systems are affected by year 2000 problem. It will cause problems in the year 2000. Possibly is gone. If is gone, it's more definitive. Basically, I'm saying we're going to have problems. Never said that. And then, of course, the reporter has to pump it up. Remember this, uh, it's no point reporting it if it's important, if it's also dull. So the reporter says, well, this sounds important, but it sounds dull. Therefore, I have to pump it up a little bit. I have to change it a little bit. They tweak it. And instead of saying what I meant or what they heard, they now change it to the following. Your systems are affected by Y2K problems. It will cause chaos in the year 2000. Um, problem has been changed with, replaced with chaos. I may have used, it will cause issues, it will 
have caused confusion. All of that's, you know, that's still not pumpy enough. So we're going to say it'll cause chaos. What they then report is the Y2K problem will cause chaos in the year 2000. What the person reads is the Y2K problem will cause chaos. And they're suffering from the same attention bias. They mishear things. They're ignorant of certain words. And they're boiling it down to the point where they can understand it. And the final message that they go away with is that we're doomed. That's all they hear. There's no ill con malice in any of the Smith's communication. The closest place where you can get to malice or you shouldn't have done that was where they tweak it to pump it up a little bit. The only thing that matters is that final understanding of the reader, we're doomed. And if you compared what I said in the beginning to what the reader understood, then it's apparent that communication of this type of issue was difficult to say the least. So, with that as a background, how did the communication start taking place within Y2K? Because it didn't start out with the chaos part. So what did we do? Well, we had a message. And the message, boiling it down again, was Y2K is an issue. The target audience for the message was the IT industry. In reality, that's the only people who had to know about this. There, there was no point telling mom and pop that there was a Y2K problem. That, that's just silly. They, they have no reason to know that. The only people that need to know are the IT industry because they're the only ones who can fix it. So we use the first media that we had available, and that was the print media, articles. And for a long time, the majority of the Y2K communication was in the form of specialist magazines that was going out to the IT industry. American Programmer, these are all from 1996. American Programmer, they had a year 2000 problem issue. Uh, we're going to come back to that because it has some really good articles in it that, that are relevant to the whole story. We won't come back to it in this episode. We'll come back to it later. There was another one, a small newsletter put out by some folks called Managing System Development. The title on this one was The IT Millennium Change, Catastrophe or Opportunity, uh, basically speaking to the industry. Is it going to destroy the industry or is it actually good? And there were some reasons why Y2K was a good event for the IT industry. For one thing, it helped computer managers, computer programmers and developers and all the rest force upper management with the threat of, you know, if we need to fix this, otherwise it's going to break. We forced them to take a look at all the legacy systems that we had and either get rid of them and replace them or fix them, bring them up to date. There was an opportunity. It allowed us to clean house. And then Datamation was fully on board with this by 1996. Uh, year 2000, Fix It Now is the title on the Datamation article. And this was all print media. And it wasn't going anywhere else. Well, that's not true either. The very, very first article I wrote, the one, um, Times Are Wasting, two days later, the Globe and Mail picked it up, and that was the little piece I've mentioned before, uh, May 21st, 1993, Friday. Uh, better mark January the 1st, 2000 on your calendars right now, not for an obvious reason, but because a consultant based in Brampton, Ontario, said that it's about time everybody, all the computers in the world will crash. This is worse than any computer to virus, Peter Diarga warns, da da da, da. Uh, They go through the an explanation of what it is, one paragraph, and to think we only have six years, six months, and ten days left to solve this vexing problem. Um, that's an example of where the reporter is pumping it up. They have an internal bias. They're ignorant of the issue. Uh, they don't believe the issue, and they're basically going to write an opinion piece. The opinion beast isn't based on anything except what I wrote and their lack of understanding of the issue. So right from the start, the message was leaking out from outside the, the, uh, from the IT industry into the masses. Everybody else, this was in the Global Mail, everybody in Canada, every business person reads the Global Mail. 
The next channel that we had was speaking directly to the audiences, to the IT industry. Luckily for us, the IT industry has conference after conference after conference after conference on subjects all the time. Any week of any year, there are at least several dozen IT conferences being held somewhere in the world. And Y2K became not only a topic at IT conferences, but it became the topic for conferences. There were conferences, many of which I spoke at, that spoke about nothing but Y2K, nothing but the technical side. These are from 1996, 1997, 1998. They are the um, SPG's Year 2000 Conference and Expo Proceedings. At every one of these, you'll find IT people speaking about various aspects of the problem. You'll find testers speaking, developers speaking, and the exhibitors would be exhibiting tools to help you with the Y2K problem, et cetera, et cetera. But all very, very focused on the IT industry. And at the time Y2K was coming on board as a topic, the internet was finally becoming available to the general consumer. And not everybody though was on board, obviously, but a lot of IT people were. And we used it, we had the year2000.com website. We had a mailing list of some 92,000 people. We had an online forum with 8,000 people that were reduced. And, but those 8,000 people were all IT people. I mean, towards the end, we started to get some trolls coming in. We started to get people joining up who had nothing to do with Y2K and were the, the real fear mongers. And we got rid of a lot of that by imposing a fee structure on it, and we went from 8,000 down to 2,000, and it was a fully moderated list. But that was very, very contained. It was very encapsulated and didn't leak out to, to everybody else. We had a few reporters on it, but not too many. Uh, we were speaking very, very technical stuff. We're down in the weeds. Okay, that's where we focused. However, we recognize we, the industry, the Y2K industry, if you want, the people out there trying to get people to listen, recognize that not all of the IT industry goes to conferences, reads, reads the magazines, et cetera, et cetera. They should, but they don't. This is true of any industry. How many managers are a member of a management association? How many testers are a member of their tester association? How many project managers are a member of PMI? Uh, we don't sign up. So if we want to get to all the rest of the IT industry that is out there, they're not going to be at the conferences, they're not reading the magazines, then we need to get them via the mass media. And I said this point, that the Y2K story starts diverting into two different directions. There's still the technical component, but other people are hearing this. And they're hearing about something that they don't really understand. They're hearing about something going wrong with technology, which is a bad thing because they don't trust technology in the first place. There are a lot of people out there that are like that. Uh, we start using not only the print, but we use TV, radio, and, it, and the internet again. The internet is blowing up as well. And once we start using these channels, then what happens is that we're no longer laser focused on the IT industry. What we're using now is a shotgun approach to communicate to as many people as possible. And if people who know nothing about IT, nothing about computers, nothing about consystems are hearing about Y2K, the fact of the matter is nothing we can do to stop it. We, we have to get the message out and we have to use the general media to use it. And when we do that, other people are going to hear. There's nothing we could do about that. We didn't really understand the implications of it, I'll give you that. And maybe if we had, maybe if we'd thought it through, maybe if we'd figured out the third order consequences, we would have done it differently. But I don't know how we could do it differently. Basically, we had grabbed hold of a tiger by the tail. Once we opened up the story to everybody, we, had a, we were on a tiger. And we could not let go. It, we just had to, to go with it. To give you an idea of how many interviews I, I personally did, I did more than 2,000 media interviews uh, in the period of 1994 to about 19, well, 1999, the end of 1999. 
So how did we go from a technical book called Countdown Y2K, myself and Richard Bergeon, uh, Business Survival Planning for the Year 2000. Now, if you read that book, uh, it would simply be, you know, you need to do this, and you need to look at this, and you need to do that, and you need to do this, all technical. There's, there's nothing here about, you know, stocking up with water, and there's none of that. This is all technical focused. We went from Y2K to a new term. You know, Y2K was a sort of an acronym for the year 2000. We went from Y2K to Teotwaki. Teotwaki. T-E-O-T-W-A-W-K-I. The end of the world as we know it. And Newsweek got into it. They had a cover of the computer. The, word, the day the world crashes. This is Newsweek. Uh, Time Magazine, The End of the World, with a guy in a, uh, what are they called, billboards, walking down the street, naked. Is he naked or is he wearing something? Why am I bothering? Uh, <laughs> the, the reality is that once it was unleashed, it, we lost control of the narrative. Now, this happened in part because we didn't realize or the reality of the situation was Y2K was not something that's happening in isolation. It's not just happening in the IT. It's, it's happening in society. And within society, there are other forces at play. Some of them are trivial. Some of them are incredibly trivial. Let's start off with a silly one. We have this fascination with numbers, almost numerology. The other day, um, on January 23rd, I had a birthday party. It was a big bash. My wife put hours and hours into this thing. Why? It was my 65th. Uh, did I say wedding? I meant birthday. Uh, it was my 65th birthday. Big to do. I had friends coming in with relatives. The whole deal. Uh, when I turn 66, that's not going to happen. Why the fascination with 65 versus 66? If you're going to say, well, Peter, it's a milestone, well, yeah, I know that, so 66. And 66 will be a bigger one because I'll have, I'll have lived an extra year. We have this fascination with numbers, and it's peculiar to say the least. The whole reason this podcast is on is because I took advantage of this fascination with numbers. I knew that the 20th anniversary of the year 2000 would be seen as a big deal by the media. Why? I don't know. All I know is that this is what we do. The next big one will be 2025. Why? Makes no sense. But numbers have meaning to folks. We celebrate our birthday. Big deal. So we went around our local star, One Full Revolution. Why is that memorable? It's just something in society. And when we come up to big numbers like the year 2000, that's a biggie. Again, why? I don't know. Ask yourself. But that played in to the Y2K issue in a small way. Now, it ties into, well, religion. Religion is out there. And some religions are fascinated with the end of days. They have predicted the end of the world more than 100 times. Strangely enough, none of them have ever come true. If you go onto the internet and Google end of times, you'll be, you might be fascinated by the number of times religion, or rather, let me rephrase that, some religious people become fascinated with, you know, next year's the year, that's it, that, this is the big one. The point is, though, that religion is there anyway. Regardless of what we do, this religious fascination with end of times is still going to be there. It's independent of Y2K. The Last Apocalypse book, I, there's a book about the Last Apocalypse. Uh, it's called Europe at the Year 1000 AD. Uh, it's by James Reston, Jr., I picked it up because of the title. I picked it up. It was published in, when was it published? 1998. It's published in 1998, and I pick it up because I'm curious. 
was there this fascination when the year turned from 999 to 1000, which would even be bigger? No computers to worry about. But was there this innate fascination? I'd heard stories that there had been, that there had been riots and that there had been people in the streets and great consternation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't know if that was true or not. This book, the title seemed to suggest it was The Last Apocalypse. So I pick it up and read it. And I'm reading through, and there's nothing, no mention of any concern about the year 1000. Right at the end of the book, there's a chapter that he put in. Why, I don't know. I, I think he'd been hearing enough about Y2K as well. He'd heard rumors that there had been year 1000 type consternation. And he had to put in a chapter. And he basically said, it's all nonsense. No one was concerned about the year rolling over to 1000. Um, why would they be? Most people, peasants around that time, wouldn't even know what year it is. And if they did, it was just a number. It factored not into their life in the least. So there wasn't a fascination back then, but there certainly is today. The Newsweek prophecy cover, uh, what the Bible says about the end of the world, uh, talks about all of the end of times predictions for the year 2000 that had nothing to do with Y2K. But with Y2K there, and with people like myself saying that there will be issues with computers and all the rest if we don't fix them, that melded nicely. It fit in very, very nicely with the prophecies. Were the prophecies real? No. Were they, they part of the culture? Yes. Are they factored into people's mental state when thinking about this? Yes, indeed. And at the same time, we have the religious aspect. There's another component. In America, there, this number blows my mind. There are, according to some reports, more than 160 million people in the United States that categorize themselves as either preppers or survivalists. And they buy the generators, they have the food, they've dug the bunkers, etc., etc., etc. Not all of the 160 million people have done that. See how hard it is to communicate? But a tremendous number of them have done this. And Y2K was perfect for them. Here was a situation that was being covered by the mass media, by The Economist, Financial Times of London, The New York Times, talking about possible major computer failures if we don't fix a problem, talking about the difficulty of fixing the problem, giving reports by country as to who we think are doing the right thing, who are not, who are behind, who are not. And lo and behold, an entire industry grew up around Y2K and the end of the world. I have the three magazines I'll mention. Y2K uh, News Magazine. There was another one, the Y2K Survival Handbook. And there was another one, Y2K Disaster 2000. Now, if you were to read those books, um, books, magazines, if you were to read the magazines, what you'd find is that they're not talking about fixing the problem at all. There is not a single word about how you fix code, how you test it, how you, how you do any of that. Every one of these magazines is selling food, MREs, weapons, ammo, how to build a bunker, etc., etc., etc. Now, th there's an irony, though. I, I mean, I read all of these things. I had to see what the other side was saying. And some of the articles are actually very good. It's the type of article that you could draw from this podcast. Give an example. There's from the disaster 2001, Y2K disaster 2000. There's an article by a fellow by the name of Bruce F. Webster, uh, your ultimate Y2K reality check. And I'm going to read through, not the whole thing, but some of the highlights. He goes through, first off, there's some myths. And I'm going to read off the myths. And, well, myth number one. Y2K will cause planes to fall out of the sky, elevators and cars to stop working, ATMs and credit cards to stop working, and VCRs to go on the blink. That's a myth. Uh, and that's what he's saying. He says none of that's true. That's all nonsense. Next one, myth number two. 
The Y2K problem has been greatly exaggerated by consultants in order to make money. That's also true. It's a myth. It's wrong. We didn't do that. Myth number three, Y2K alarmists have no basis for their predictions. Um, that's also true. There is a basis for some of the alarmists. There are problems that we found. And if not fixed, they would have caused issues. Myth number four, Y2K problems only happen old COBOL programs running on older mainframe computers. Again, true statement, as in, it's a myth. That's not true. Y2K problems occurred everywhere. I mean, this is almost as if I'm reading from, you know, a serious computer magazine. Myth number five, Y2K problems only happen to software or devices that came that care about the year and that are doing certain year-based calculations. Also true in the sense it's the myth. It's an incorrect statement. It happens elsewhere. Myth number six, only a small fraction of all computer programs are affected and they can easily be identified. Yeah, if you believe that, you're going to cause yourselves all types of grief. Uh, give you another one. I found it fascinating. I mean, I'm doing the podcast. I'm going back through the old magazines and the old books and the old journals and all the rest and reading them. And it is interesting going back 20 years later. Uh, myth number seven, Bill Gates or someone else will come up with a solution. You have no idea how many times I heard that. He's absolutely spot on. That was more nonsense. Myth eight, hiring more people will help speed up late Y2K repair projects. I started out this series talking about Frederick's books, Mythical Man Month, the fact that hiring more people isn't going to be the solution to this. Myth number nine, Y2K is a technical problem. Uh, no, it's not technical. As you've seen in this podcast, it's far from being technical. Myth 10, civilization as we know it will collapse. This is the Teotihuacan stuff. And no, that isn't what's going to happen. It's simply not going to happen. Okay. Fact number one, uh, Y2K is real. Fact number two, we will not get everything fixed in time. He's correct. Uh, we didn't even get it fixed in time for 2020. Fact number three, Y2K problems will have consequences we do not expect. That's true. Uh, I mentioned prior to starting the show, there's a 101-year-old man in the UK right now that has gotten snagged up in some Brexit computing. And uh, the computer is determined he's one year old, and therefore he needs something signed by his parents. He's 101 years old. Um, fact number four, Y2K events will be distributed, overlapping and interacting. True. Fact five, self-reliance, social cohesion, and leadership are the most important factors in getting through Y2K. Absolutely true. He has uh, three closing op opinions, and then I'll leave this article, which is surprisingly accurate, considering the magazine that it's in. Uh, opinion one, January the 1st, 2000, will be anticlimactic, at least in the United States. Truer words have never been spoken. Opinion two, at least one non-U.S. government, probably in a developing country, will collapse or be overthrown because of Y2K. Eh, no, that didn't happen, but it was an opinion. He didn't state it as fact. Uh, opinion three, um, Y2K or some direct consequences thereof will be a possibly major factor in the year 2000 U.S. presidential and congressional races. Nope, that didn't happen either. It wasn't. Uh, it would have if we hadn't bothered to fix the whole thing. Uh, the survivalists were there, and the reality is that they would have been there anyway. Uh, Y2K just fed it. They gave them some hard facts to work with. They certainly increased uh, their their sales. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, we have this fascination with disaster and chaos. It's not just Y2K that caused this type of hype and hysteria. There was a little thing about the Mayan calendar that ended, it came to an end on December the 13th, uh, 2012. And some people believed, again, that it, would, it designated the end of the world. After all, if the calendar is coming to an end, well, the ancient Mayans must have known something that we didn't know, and therefore the world was going to end. I had relatives come up to me and say, Peter, you know, what are we going to do? You know, about what? Well, 2012, I said, well, 
I don't know, is it your birthday? Or is, is it something important? Because I don't know what you're talking about. NASA had to come out and talk about this and say, you know, calm down, relax. Uh, people went nuts. There were two uh, reality stars. Who were they? Heidi Montag and Spencer Pratt. They revealed they had spent most of their $10 million of accumulated earnings by 2010 because they believed the world would end in 2012. This is nuts. Uh, we have a fascination with this type of end-of-time story. Uh, to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, we have people preparing for the zombie apocalypse. Is it half in jest? Is it half in... Yeah, it is. But I know people who have a basement filled with zombie-killing devices. I have strange friends. We are fascinated by this type of stuff. And to be honest, there's something else about this type of disaster stuff. The fascination goes just beyond being interested in it. There's a whole body of knowledge, which I've just become aware of as I'm putting the podcast together. I wish I'd known about it earlier. Something called disaster mythology, where people have done studies about how we look at disasters. And there's one particular comment. They talk about something called availability cascade. It's a self-reinforcing. Oh, let me change something. It's a self-reinforcing process of collective belief formation by which an expressed perception triggers a chain reaction that gives the perception increasing plausibility through its rising availability in the public discourse. Now, that applies 100% to Y2K discussion. In the beginning, there was just a few lunatics like myself saying, hey, we have a computer problem. And a few snarky reporters saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then as it grew, because it was true, because of the fact that people were going out and looking at it and saying, yeah, you know, there is an issue, and more people got talking about it, it got to the point where you could not escape Y2K discussions. I remember my kid, my kid was must be about 12, 14 at the time. We were sitting around dinner watching TV, and uh, he's flipping from one chan channel to the other at 6 o'clock at night, news time. And he's flipping through all the channels, and I'm on every single channel. On every single newscast, there I am talking about Y2K. And it wasn't just me. There were... This went on day in, day out for months. You couldn't get away from the subject. So if you're out there and you're ignorant of computers and you don't really know what's going on and you're just picking up your information from the media, I cannot really blame you for getting carried away, excited, and terrified. Uh, the disaster mythology, if you're interested in it, the book is, there's a book, a collection of essays. It's entitled Disaster and Socio-Legal Studies. And it's by a person by the name of Susan Sterrett. The last name is spelled S-T-E-R-E-T-T. -E -T -T. Uh, if you're interested in this aspect of why we are fascinated with disaster and how we build stories around it, it might be worthwhile. Pick that up. Uh, a summary for this well, we had a problem, okay? There was no doubt about it. Y2K was an issue. Uh, we've been over that in earlier parts of the podcast. We, we identified problems, and if we didn't fix them, they would have had negative consequences. So we had to communicate that. Now, even at this point, some people will disagree. One of the responses, we didn't have to air our dirty laundry out. We didn't have to raise this as an issue because the IT industry was smart enough to figure this out on our own. We didn't have to be told. I disagree with them. Why? Well, because there's a 101-year-old man who needs parental signage for something he wants to do. Why? Because the IT industry can't figure out that a 101-year-old man is not one years old. So when people talk to me about, you know, the IT industry is competent, no, it isn't. Uh, we're incompetent, and Y2K has demonstrated that. We redeemed ourselves by fixing it in time, but we would not have fixed it if we hadn't beaten the drums.
Okay, so we have to communicate the issue. Once we got the mass media engaged, okay, we simply lost control of the narrative. There is absolutely no doubt about that. There isn't, I'd, lo I'd love to be able to say there's no technical people who were, you know, on the doomsday side, on the survivalist side, but there were. The vast majority, though, were working to get the problem solved. That's all it was. We didn't understand the media well enough to manage the message. I don't know, with, even with 2020 hindsight, I do not know if we could have controlled the narrative once it hit the mass media. Once a reporter takes an idea, they run with it. And they run with it to feed their bias, what they think will work. It started out simple titles from my original article that went to Doomsday 2000. That's what the media does. The religious prophecy culture existed prior to Y2K. There's nothing that Y2K did other than eh, inadvertently reinforce some of that just by existing. Uh, we didn't deliberately reinforce the prophecies or anything like that, but it happened because it fed into, the, into that narrative. The survivalists existed before Y2K. And if it hadn't been us, they would have fed into the religious narrative. Many of them did. In the three magazines I mentioned, one of them, half of the articles are religious-oriented. They are end-of-times-oriented. They're not about COBOL. <laughs> They're about Jesus. They're two totally different worlds. We are fascinated by disaster. One of the things that's always sort of amused me, if you watch the hurricane reporting, you get this Category 5 bearing down on Florida. I remember this one in particular. I can't remember the name of the hurricane, but it was Category 5 heading down, targeted towards NASA and uh, the launch site with the large buildings that they have for the various rockets and the rest. And if it had hit Category 5, it would have totally destroyed that facility. And it not only did it turn away, but it dropped off to a Category 2 overnight. And maybe it's just me. Maybe it's the way I read the media. But I'm looking at the reporters, and they were so disappointed that it wasn't still a Category 5. I mean, they were saying, you know, luckily it's moved away, but it, they looked deflated. They would have had so much more fun reporting on a total wipeout of NASA. Uh, maybe I'm just being too cynical here. Maybe I'm too much of a curmudgeon. But I still look back at that and say, you know, sometimes they just seem to want it to happen. Uh, Teotihuacan, the end of the world as we know it, was a result, a combination of all of these things coming together at the same time. When? The year 2000. Folks, that's it for this particular episode. Next episode will most probably be more on Y2K as a change project. I talk about it from the perspective of bringing a change about. So it'll be a lot of change uh, peppered built around the Y2K issues that I faced. I perceived Y2K as a change project. That's how I addressed it. That's how I worked with it. Um, that's the first time I'll be talking about that. Um, if you want to support the podcast, there is premium content available at www.vimeo.com, V-I-M-E-O, slash on demand, O-N-D-E-M-A-N-D, slash Y2K. And just because you're listening today, here's a promo code so that you can, eh, trial run a few of these. Uh, it's a 70% discount code, and the code is Y2KDAGER, D-E-J-A-G-E-R. It includes interviews from the trenches, and the, what you're actually listening to is supported by visual graphics, a PowerPoint. For those of you who've been asking, all I'm using is PowerPoint, but I'm using some animation brought about by one of the techniques the tools inside PowerPoint. That's why it looks so different from any PowerPoint you've seen before. Uh, this host, it's hosted on Podbean, and it's up on iTunes, and the title of the podcast is Y2K, an autobiography. My email is pdauger at technobility.com. You can send me an email. 
You can contact me by leaving notes on Podbean or on iTunes. Uh, just Google Y2K and Autobiography and you'll find me. And I'd ask for your support. But even more important than the support, quite frankly, is spread the word. Here's what I'd love you to do. Write a review about what you just heard. Post it on your social media. I'd appreciate that. Thank you, folks. And uh, be good. And I'll see you again in about two weeks. Take care. Have a great day.